Hello, and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Russell Hargrave. And I'm Lucinda Rouse. We're reporters at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. And today, we're going to be talking about mergers, when charities come together and become one. But before all that, we're going to welcome back, you may remember him from last week, our news editor, Steve Downs. Steve, are you there? Hello again. How are you? Very good indeed. You're right. Hi, Steve. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Hello, Lucinda. It's been a busy week of news, I know. Anyone looking through the Third Sector website will have seen a good flow of information all week. What in particular has caught your eye? Well, a couple of things I've picked out. The first is the remarkable response to the earthquake mm. in Turkey and Syria. And we always see people in this country digging deep. And within a few days of the launch of the actual appeal, more than 70 million was raised. Mm. But I was particularly interested in a charity that's actually won an award at the Third Sector Awards last year. It's called Islamic Relief, and they do extraordinary work. And they have organisations and people here and out in Syria and Turkey at all times. So they were able to respond remarkably quickly to the situation. And one of the things that really really saddened me was there's a comment from the guy who runs the operation in this country saying that some of their volunteers over there first had to bury members of their family and then begin to help others Mm. and I think that puts it into perspective for me they've also handed out 260,000 medical items in Syria 23,000 bread packets. It's just an extraordinary thing for us to try and contemplate when we think of food banks in this country and the work that they do, which is amazing. We're talking about hundreds or low thousands of packages over there. They've reached 333,000 people in Syria alone. I think it shows the extraordinary coordination that is involved and also the endless steps of human kindness. Mm in responding yeah. to a crisis. And as you say, that ability to mobilise and operate at lightning speed when members of their own team are fully caught up in the middle of that crisis as well, it is extraordinary. I mean, I guess they must have pretty great systems in place along with so many other humanitarian organisations that will enable them to react on the day as soon as that yeah. news hits of a crisis. Yeah, very much so. And there's a piece, I think, this week by our colleague Alina Martin outlining some of the this mobilisation and what charities like Islamic Relief have been up to, am I right? Yes, it's a fantastic piece and has all sorts of detail. And as I say, it's very poignant, as you would expect when we're talking about daily thousands more people found to have died. I don't know what the latest figure will be. But it's beyond our comprehension. It's more than, you know, more than a football stadium full of people, which mm. is terrible. Yeah. And Steve, I know um, you were looking at another story that took your interest this week, which is closer to home, but not very uplifting either. No, it, no, they're not particularly cheerful stories at all <laughs> this week. But this at least has a happy-ish ending because they were able to deal with it. But I think this story is about the Sick Children's Trust. They had their identity stolen by people we're calling scammers, but actually simply criminals. They stole their Twitter. They slightly changed their Twitter name. And they were selling £800 tickets to the for the Newcastle versus Manchester United 
League Cup final at Wembley on the 26th of February. The tickets didn't exist. They weren't representing the Sick Children's Trust. But the worst thing for me was that they actually used the stories of the children and the families involved. So they pinched them from the website and used those stories as ways to extract money from people. So thankfully, they managed to close down two fake Twitter accounts. But it's a, it's perhaps a sad lesson for everybody in the charity sector to have to learn. You have to be so aware of what a very small minority of people will do. Thank you very much, Steve. Great to speak to you again. My pleasure. Thank you. So now we move on to the main portion of this week's podcast to talk about mergers. Now, you may recall that we were talking last week about collaborations, how charities can work together effectively to maximise their output and their impact at a time of often financial difficulty. Mergers is obviously one step on from that. And this conversation, I think, comes at quite a good time because there's been a good merger index findings report recently released, hasn't there, Russ? Yeah. So analysts called Eastside People, they do this every year. Mm -hmm. The good mergers index comes out once a year. And the update was this week. So I'm looking forward to speaking to our guest in a moment who's gone through this. But we've got a bit of a background on the data as well. What the good mergers index found is actually the number of charity mergers taking place last year, 2021, 2022 was down compared to the middle of COVID when it spiked up a little bit. Maybe not that surprising because charities were starting to see financial trouble and thinking about their futures. Now we've got a year where it turns out those numbers have dropped again. So we saw, I think it was 55 mergers in total across 21, 22. The thing that really jumps out about that figure is it's not very many. Mm. It's not very many charities. Mergers are talked about an awful lot. For some charities, they are clearly a smart and effective way of thinking about how they can have the greatest impact or address any problems or risks that might exist. But actually, when you are talking about 50 mergers one year, 70-odd the year before that, you're simply seeing that charities are not choosing to go down this road all that often. So I think it'd be really interesting to find out a little bit more, straight from the horse's mouth, as it were, about why some people do choose to do this and go all the way. Because the other thing we know is that an awful lot of charities who might talk about mergers it just stays yeah. talk and it mm. never actually gets realised. Well, let's have a chat with our guests to find out more. Our guest this week is Keith Valentine, Chief Executive of Fight for Sight, an eye research charity which announced its merger with the Vision Foundation in January. Keith previously held senior positions at the Thomas Pocklington Trust, Vision UK and RNIB. Hello, Keith. Hi, good morning. You joined Fight for Sight in January of last year. Were you aware back then that a possible merger was on the cards? No, I wish I had that kind of prescience and uh, was able to <laughs> predict the future with that kind of granularity. I think what I did know was that Fight for Sight had plateaued, albeit plateaued with some exceptional work investing in research and some real results come from there. But the governing group of trustees, very many of whom although from diverse backgrounds, have genuine ambition for impact over and above sustainability. You know, I knew that I had a job to do to find growth in impact and you know, by virtue of that to find growth in the, um, the operational structure of the organisation in order to achieve it. So I think 
if you take the view, if there's a third way to the two that I'm going to outline to achieving growth, it's great. But basically, you need to get more money in or to find the kind of partnerships and consolidations that will, that will give you growth. I think our endeavours were simply to do both and to explore all the options that were available. I would say that the thing that I did know intimately was the Vision Foundation as an organisation because I've been one of the um, visually impaired people that sits on their grant approval panel, which I'd been doing alongside my role on the board of the Turner Contemporary Gallery as a um, you know voluntary activity in the sector. So I knew them intimately. And Olivia Kerno, who's the outgoing chief exec from Vision Foundation, she and I, in the various roles that I had that you outlined there in the sight loss sector, had real proximity to each other as two leaders thinking about how organizations in the you know the modern climate and believe me the modern climate is not a stable environment but how organizations start to think about impact as the primary measurement of success so it became fairly swiftly one of the natural conversations not about necessarily merger but about you know, views Olivia might share and ideas that Olivia might have as a different style of leader, but a very accomplished one as to what we could do at Fight for Science. So the conversation had its genus there, but a matter of everyday practice for me is to reach out and reach for community from other leaders in the third sector. You know, and, and you know, there are a number of other conversations that have manifested in different projects and different ways of working that probably wouldn't be as interesting to discuss on a podcast as a merger with it being so rare. And th- th- no, I mean, they are strikingly rare mergers. This mm. is something we've talked about on the podcast in the past. What was it that made you guys decide you would go the whole hog with this, not just collaborate or create a partnership, some of those things you mentioned there, but really go all in for a merger? So I would say that it was twofold. And if you get the chance to bring Olivia on your podcast, I'd recommend it. She's fantastic. <laughs> and she may give you a nuanced view of it. But from my point of view, one is really practical, which is to think about in setting out on that kind of endeavor particularly so for me so early in my tenure as chief exec is just to take a measurement of what's possible with the governance community the exec community the chief execs and the 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 balance of cause if you like so that you can create something great in the sum of its parts the mechanics of the operation fit together in a way that will give you you know efficiencies and advantages in terms of you know systems and reserve structures etc etc so there's a whole bundle of things where you're making a judgment about do we all agree that they fit together so that's where the opportunity is i think you know the discussion about the idea of what you might do is the party and uh, the practicalities of structuring what you could do is, is the hangover and the recovery <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's an unfortunate way of putting it but you know I, I think it very much is in those terms it's the less exciting part of this really is about do the factors that would lead to the potential for delivering something that's you know, fulfilling the charitable objectives of both organisations, both sets of trustees, and, and that can maintain enthusiasm and momentum in relatively small teams. There's another side of it as well, which I think is really what lights the fire. And I think this is particular to the site loss charitable sector, which is that there isn't a definite national funder that's focusing on those two things that occur when you get told, I think this is true of any disease or life-affecting illness or condition which is that moment of diagnosis where your two questions are can you stop this happening to me how do i live my life Mm. and the conception of what we're doing is not simply about locking two organizations together to make them more efficient to do a bit more it's to say that if you look at the way that grant funding infrastructure works in heart alzheimer's dementia stroke these other areas there are significant grant funding organizations that are 
you know, unencumbered by the kind of infrastructures that you get. And in our world, that's, you know, guide dogs have a brilliant but huge infrastructure in order to deliver the dog's proposition. And I've got the result of that sat here next to me having a nap. Dotty, my guide dog, may make an entry at some point, just to warn you. Oh, we um, would love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, honestly, you wouldn't believe how much more popular I am. Since I <laughs> uh, and also RNIB, which is kind of, you know, I mean, they're, they're both organisations doing around £100 million a year, big service infrastructures. I would say under the leadership of Tom Wright at Guide Dogs and Matt Stringer at RNIB, they've really shifted to, you know, think about the future. So, it's, you know, all I'm simply saying is that there's a missing third spot for a fund that can start to invest in the kind of innovation and white labeling of approaches and also in the science and the treatment of eye disease that's missing in this sector in a way that I think you can see in other sectors and actually in other sectors, you know, Cancer Research UK, British Heart Foundation, Diabetes UK, those funding organisations, you know, community connected organisations tend to be the bigger parties. But I think structurally there's something you know, emitted from this sector that I think will both enhance the the other partner um, nationals and also, you know, give an opportunity to start to explore where the innovative leaps might come from because the investment that reaching for impact is the kind of thing that would give you the advances in treatments but also advances in the social and public policy that can tackle some of the inequalities that exist for blind and visually impaired people. Mm. And on a more practical level, you must be living and breathing this merger mm. um you're going to be merged by april i understand what's taking up most of your time at the moment so everything's in the ops everything's in how you bring those two organizations together maintaining business as usual none of us want to take our foot off the pedal in part i think because this is a strategic merger so there's no there's no financial deficit on either side that's been resolved by a merger both are in a strong financial position and you know fight for sight are you know we're above the market performance at the moment you know our christmas appeal hit its targets there isn't a burning platform financially to to drive the kind of choices that you're making fit into organizations together operationally and that actually is a great thing from the point of view of designing something that's combining the best of both and being fresh and new because there isn't you know an external pressure on pace for that but that also does mean that you've got you know choices to make at every single level and it's not just me living it i think both exec teams and chairs and trustees are in a similar spot it's a big complex thing to do even for two reasonably small organizations particularly if you're not just saying we're going to close for six months and reveal ourselves like a butterfly at the end of it you know I maintain it's worth doing, and I think that's 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 the reach. You know, reaching for impact is is the is the reason, and it's just graft and achieving best value when you've got multiples of different contracts to settle. And you know, I mean, I can keep going. It will probably it probably create the same atmosphere that we're experiencing of just like <laughs> endless lists of uh, things <laughs> that you've got to get done. And it's testing the team. We were at full tilt prior to the merger, and we're full tilt plus ten after you know, mm. in the process. And how are you ensuring that you? retain the support both internally from your staff and also externally internally is interesting because knowing both organizations you know well myself and um, olivia back the other way as well we were conscious that there's some cultural differences just because the nature of the work we've got people that have worked on science for a long time they've got people that have worked on social impact i think both of us have taken the view that this is an ears open process we are going to be taking you know, a modest amount of time to reset the new strategy for the whole organization. That'll be a fully engaged process. 
I think I'm trying to be as visible as possible and we're getting the exact teams together. Trustees have got, you know, we're going to make them do a bit of work first, but they've got drinks on next Monday to start to get those kind of connections and, and bonds going. You know, and this came from both Heather and Louise of the chairs, that, that the attention to detail on the involvement and communication with people internally is critical. And um, we're particularly conscious because there's a 20-odd staff working in the, um, and volunteers working in the Vision Foundation retail operation in London. And I think it's really easy with these cause-driven sort of initiatives, whether they're mergers or otherwise, to leave people behind from the conversation about why. So we've put a lot of time into making sure that that all hangs together. And there's been plenty of quizzes and we're doing some kind of treasure hunt in East London near the offices. You know, there's a lot going into that side of things. Externally, I think it's a different kettle of fish. We have been, I think, surprised in both charities, myself and Olivia, the enthusiasm that there's been for what we're setting out to do. And given, I mean, we've got a big, long-established scientific stakeholder community with some of the leading figures in ophthalmology internationally based in the UK. And you'd imagine, you know, I diaried a lot of time for those guys and and to make sure that we were talking through what the rationale was and you know we found real resonance and particularly driven by their concern about the patients that they're engaging in trials and that they were already thinking is there more that fight for sight could do to help us with you know as they would call it patient engagement so with with blind and visually impaired people and i think certainly the sort of stakeholders on the vision foundation side as well similarly there's a ring of authenticity in this fact that i think we all know from ever having been to a hospital for whatever condition that two questions pop into your head you know can you stop it happening how do i live my life it's it's that's a normal authentic human response and i think the fact that this is positioned so centrally on how this organization achieves impact for people at that point in time or at that point in time with their with their children even to the extent i got diagnosed with diabetes last autumn and i literally sat in the chair with the doctor and said can this be stopped how do I cope with it as I go along? And I thought, my God, I'm like my own focus group. <laughs> but don't worry about me. It's making me very healthy, diabetes. Just like sight loss has made me a decent person. So. <laughs> and I'm afraid this is a very practical question. It's not always the one that charities want to answer. But do you have an idea of how much this is all going to cost? Yes. I mean, there's a budget for delivering it, which you'd appreciate. I can't, I can't specify here. I mean, it's it's a token of our annual turnover in time. We've been very, very fortunate in that we've been able to do all but the um, sort of primary work. So, for example, on something like 2P, where you would expect us to be sort of like hiring an external expertise, we've been able to reach across both executive teams who've mm-hmm. bought in very early to get things done. My assessment is that it's modest compared to the immediate financial gains of bringing to the two organizations together. So, you know, it's inevitable i think that the best advice will give you the best opportunity for delivering a positive outcome and you know that doesn't come cheap but i mean we're running under budget in areas where we're overperforming so in uh, fundraising for example and we've managed despite doing the merger to allocate 2.3 million into research in the last fortnight and you know the buy-in from the stakeholder community has been really really excellent up on last year so, you know, I think it's, um, you know, not something I get into in the specifics, but I think anyone that's kind of hired in that high level, you know, specialist consultancy around legal matters and um, HR, et cetera, you know, some degree of communications advice, you know, will understand that there's a price tag attached to that. I don't think that we've gone 
in any way too far. And as I say, I think you know the gains that are made from the merger are way in excess of what we've spent in achieving it. I think that generally when charities are focused on impact, that needs investment, right? Whether that focus is in the form of mergers or any, any other way that you can try and make the charity more effective and impactful. So uh, I'm not surprised. Yeah, and it's a judgment to make, to be honest with you. And I think certainly when Olivia and I started talking about this, we would we were fairly swiftly into talking about the numbers, impacts on staff, figuring out what you'd need to do to achieve it. I think is, you know, I think certainly that I would point to elements of the process that was that was there fortuitously because Olivia and I know each other well. If you invite me back, I might tell you the number. Never mind invite. I might phone your comms office in April. That that might yeah, be our yeah, next yeah. point well, of contact. Definitely get a line off them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're painting a picture that this is all going um, quite well so far. But I'd also like to ask, is there anything that has come up that you hadn't anticipated and anything that's perhaps harder to execute than you thought might be the case? I wouldn't say harder to execute. The areas that I think are always going to be complicated are where you've got two organisations with incredibly loyal staff teams and trustees that have worked really hard to get both organisations where they are. And this is true. You know, These are two organisations that have survived the pandemic not just sustainable, but able to spend more towards cause. And that's not come at any small price to people's, you know, time and energy. You know, I mean, we've all of us been through, I might run through the list to bring everyone down, but, you know, there's a lot going on, as we know, in the last sort of two or three years. And, you know, I think that this is a big ask of those two governance communities and not so much the exact side, because there's a lot of fairly new people, you know, in both teams, which presents its different problems and people sort of like being less established. But... I think the governance side is complex and should be. I think that years ago, I mean, I started off before I went blind. I used to run a, a business in uh, in regeneration and we did do sort of takeovers, if you like. And this is, mm. you know, that was where one side was buying. Actually, we got bought once and then we bought something else. And that was, you know, that has its horrors, but it's a much more clean and less emotional process or it was for me. But this isn't a takeover. This is a coming together around a new cause and, that, I think, is complex. But I don't think it's kind of surprising. I think mean, I was expecting it. I'm not trying to gloss it over either. There's a lot of work gone in. And, you know, there have been and you know and remain disagreements and debate about the best way forward. And I think the, the thing that's been really telling in solving that is the trustees, and particularly the two chairs, Heather and Louise, are seeing that as something that can drive innovation in the charity. But it's, you know, I mean, it remains something where once we're complete and we're signed, not just the glass of wine, but also the lay in on the Saturday morning and not waking up at three o'clock thinking, oh my God, is the list complete? Have we done X, Y, and Z? That sort of thing is uh, something that's being owned by you know all of the staff group. I mean, the big thorny thing that we'll need to address is brand. And you know, I think looking at the work that's been done over the last couple of years with um, Asthma UK and British Lung Foundation, who I think of you know, I, I, you know, I can see that you know questions of brand loyalty to organisations are going to be big, and that you know they're big in our discussions, and you know we will need to find a route to landing that for the benefit of the people we serve, our stakeholder community, and our you know and our governance. So I would I would see that as something that's you know difficult, complex, but you know actually the word I'd rather use is really significant and really important to get right. I don't, you know, the reason why I'm confident is because just the sheer amount of energy and effort being made, even when we're dealing with difficult things where we might not agree, you know, the commitments there. I think that's that's the glue that's keeping it together. And what top tips would you have for charity managers listening to this who are considering a merger? I think, well, 
don't get too high on the initial idea and make sure you've kind of you know you've you've got the chemistry and the connection to be able to you know to do it and that doesn't mean you necessarily like each other or get on it's coincidentally Olivia and I do really like each other and get on <laughs> um, and I, I think that has been a bit of a bonus here and there where we've you know we had to you know sort things out where we've got different perspectives because we've got some social capital between each other so I I'd, my sense would be to you know be clear that your principal motivation for doing the merger generally will be the one that you've thought about the most and for us it was cause I think the pause that we made to figure out the mechanics what are what are our red lines if you like and I wouldn't recommend anyone's carrying a bag of red lines around with them in a merger I think it's a nuanced art but I think your red lines in terms of cause so for us it's that the consequence of this has to be in real time that there are benefits to our grant programs because that's how we reach the two elements of what we're trying to do can we stop it happening how do people live their lives that that has to be advantaged mm-hmm. and then back from that you know are we are we bothered is anyone particularly attached to an it <laughs> anyone's particularly attached to an <laughs> it supplier or you know hr set up or you know all those sorts of things i think it's worth just flushing through a bit of the detail before you start to activate it in your exec and governance community because it's a huge commitment you know I, I would have had a you know an equally busy year not doing this but it would have been one that was you know a lot less complex <laughs> and something a little bit more personal you've talked about being one of the only visually impaired leaders in this sector um, mm. for the last hundred years I mean are you surprised that that you are sort of carrying the flag on your own a little bit for this at the moment? I mean, I've been in the sight loss sector for how long now? I don't know. It's a 14 years. I, don't, I can't <laughs> It depends when it started. Um, so no, I'm not surprised. I think that, I mean, I'm certainly the only one, I'm the only visually impaired chief exec of a national. Mm. And there are people out there in, you know, local organisations that, you know, you connect with. And also there are a number of blind chief execs. So the chief executive of the Charities Aid Foundation, Neil, who's a, He's a good friend. Mm. He's by Neil Heslop, Chief Executive Employers Network for Equality and Inclusion. Sandy Wasserman, very, very impressive, rising leader. And David Clark, who's recently been appointed to the um, British Paralympic Association. You know, these three guys, Sandy has the same eye condition as me. Um, David was um, blind since birth. Uh, Neil also since he was young. So, you know, it's not the case that there aren't kind of high caliber capable leaders out there. I wouldn't want to point the finger individually at organisations now. These are complex and difficult things to point out. But mm. I think were somebody to say, well, you know, it's difficult because you can't reach to the talent and talent pools and it takes time and we've got to bring people through. Well, I mean, how many times have those kind of um, framings been used to express why there aren't more women on boards or why mm. there aren't more you know, people from diverse backgrounds? You know, There's something in intersectionality in play here. There's something really really important for the sector the sight loss sector's authenticity you know I, th- I think it's it's a fault line and the answer to it can't just be intern programs for early career stage people there's got to be something where the you know the talent has the opportunity to make its way through in the sector you know in that, in that case that i'm the only blind person who wants to work in leadership in the sight loss sector <laughs> that points to another problem and having seen the jobs that some of the other guys do other colleagues i can you know i can see why people wouldn't necessarily want to do it but you know it's difficult from my just speaking purely personally i mean my mm. daughter's just been diagnosed with this eye condition she had a really particularly bad experience in that diagnosis because she could have none of her family with her because it was locked down and she was 
found out in a corridor because they were reading our scans out loud and um, it's been tougher. But then my mum also went through a difficult thing and my grandmother and we go back and back and back. So for the whole time, there's not been a blind leader. My family have been going blind, mostly in East London. So quite pleased to still be in the same spot. And, you know, at root, for me as a visually impaired person, conscious of the privilege I have, you know, a white guy who previously ran a business and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I do think that there is time for us as a sight loss sector and more widely with disability as well to start to not, I don't think challenging individual organisations is the way to go. I think there's something about us setting a new standard mm. and I think inclusive thinking and, and it's no more acceptable to say there's not more women involved on a board because you can't find the talent. You know, I would literally elevate it to that, you know, to that extent. And um, it's a personal cause, you know, and I'm, what I'm mm. trying to do is find the constructive narrative to do it because I think there's so much good work going on, particularly in the sight loss end of the sector. Um, talent first. But lived experience overlaying that, can, I think, can give us some unique authenticity. And um, for someone like my daughter and her friends that she's met since she got a diagnosis, it'll give them somewhere to look for their future. Role models are important, I think. Yeah, so much food for thought. Well, Keith Valentine, Chief Executive of Fight for Sight, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Good to see you. Thank you so much. So that was a very interesting chat yeah, with Keith Valentine. One thing that particularly jumped out at me was this merger of opportunity versus merger of necessity. And clearly, Keith was telling us that this was a merger of opportunity. It was two organizations who were already in a very strong financial position mm. who decided to come together for their mutual benefit. Well, he was very keen to stress that, and I don't blame him because there's always a risk when people talk about mergers of thinking, okay, is this is this a bit like a takeover? One smaller organisation, if you think about it outside of charities and businesses, what might you have? An organisation in distress that's got a few assets, got some intellectual property, and a bigger organisation swoops in and takes it over. In fact, I was quite interested to hear Keith say that he had had that experience as well when he'd worked in the private sector before mm. he became a charity boss, and you do wonder whether that sort of armed him in advance a little bit for how to make it work best for, for his charity as he is at the moment. But yeah, I think charity bosses who decide what's happening in this particular merger, it's one research and science outfit merging with a service delivery outfit. Yeah. Both of them around that kind of, I think it's about two million, three million pound income a year mark. So two pretty big charities, very clear different interests that are going to become one much bigger organisation, one would imagine. So I understand exactly why he's keen to stress. Yeah, this this is not one of those situations where one of the big ones swoops down on one of the small charities and sort of takes away their assets. That's a, a whole different ballgame. Of course, those mergers do happen, but that, that, that's not what Keith's experiencing. Mm. Yeah, and it is a big risk, isn't it? I don't know whether it's a bigger risk for smaller charities who are going through a takeover. Obviously, there's a risk of their legacy being overlooked or overpowered mm. by the organization that's taking them over but the charity commission does suggest that organizations might prefer to look at a more informal form of collaboration because they are less risky and could be more efficient but then at the same time they put out some guidance in december talking about how charities can survive the cost of living crisis and suggested mergers that was an option for that. Yeah, and there are a few people, I remember when that happened, I talked to a few people around the side and people weren't thrilled about that framing because, again, if you're talking about mergers as something that can happen to increase the impact of two organisations, yet again, seeing it being discussed by the regulators as something where it was about saving mm. someone financially, is it just a whole different ball game? And that may be 
I'm speculating, I guess, but that may be one of the reasons why not a lot of mergers do tend to happen is because people don't want to give any impression at all that they're financially struggling. And we mentioned earlier the um, Eastside People work that was published this week. One of the things it found is that actually the proportion of charities involved in mergers last year who were turning deficit the year before had actually fallen. So in fact, the number of charities involved in mergers who are financially distressed seems to be lower than it used to be. In other words, that this takeover model is simply not a dominant part of all this. It is more likely to be organisations looking to kind of increase their impact a little bit more. So plenty to chew on. I think mergers are absolutely fascinating, (laughs) but also they don't happen that often. And I think Mm. understanding why they happen when they do and why they don't happen as often as they could is a really interesting thing for us to look at more. Yeah. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, Andy and I will be in the studio talking to the fundraising company Omaze, who you might know as the company behind the £3 million house prize draws. If you're on social media, you will have seen that advertised a thousand times a day (laughs) since Christmas, I think. Yeah, they are all over my pages, I think, since the first time I Googled them. And we will also be joined by the Teenage Cancer Trust, who were the first UK charity partner for Omaze. And together, we hope to demystify the concept. Another part of the demystifying that we're doing, the transcripts from these podcasts are going up online. So you don't have to just listen to us. You can go back and look through in detail what's been discussed. Those go up on the Third Sector website this week. So you can have a peruse. But for now, I'm Lucinda Rouse. I'm Russell Hargrave. Thank you to our guest, Keith Valentine, and our producer, Navpal. Join us again next week. <laughs>